Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today, we're taking a deep dive into Pakistan's role in Afghanistan. For at least three decades, Pakistan has proved a complicated defense and counterterrorism partner for the U.S. Pakistan's intelligence agency, the ISI, was fundamental in the rise of the Taliban during the Afghan civil war of the 1990s. And even after the fall of the Taliban government with the U.S. invasion in 2001, Pakistan served as a safe harbor for both Taliban and al-Qaeda leaders. Most importantly, Osama bin Laden killed in his final hideout in Abbottabad, Pakistan. The ISI is also connected to regional terrorist organizations such as Lashkar-e-Taiba in Kashmir and ISIS-K, the group behind the bombing at Kabul airport that killed nearly 200 people, including 13 U.S. service members. Most recently, after the U.S. withdrawal, Pakistani ISI chief Faiz Hamid visited Kabul and has been accused of supporting the Taliban attacks on the last remaining pockets of resistance in the Panjshir Valley. Now that the U.S. has no military presence in Afghanistan, is Pakistan a reliable defense partner to keep an eye on the chaos that may fill the vacuum left by the U.S. withdrawal? Is Pakistan playing a double game in Afghanistan? We're joined by Madia Afzal, the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and author of Pakistan Under Siege, Extremism, Society, and the State. Madia Afzal, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having me. Over the weekend, I, I read a quote from one Pakistan analyst, Christine Wheeler, saying, Pakistan is not the fire brigade, it's the arsonist. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you buy that? What is what is Pakistan's strategy in the region? I think Pakistan, uh, you know, discussing Pakistan's role in Afghanistan has to go back a few decades. Uh, And it's worth uh, walking through uh, its role since uh, the 1980s. So in the 1980s, Pakistan and um, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were allied in helping the Afghan Mujahideen fight against the Soviets. Uh, The U.S. and Saudi Arabia provided funds um, and arms, and Pakistan trained these fighters to fight against the Soviets um, and uh, in that covert war. Once the U.S. left the region uh, in in 1989, essentially, and and, Russia receded, uh, there was a vacuum in Afghanistan. Pakistan's strategy towards Afghanistan has been one of strategic depth. It wants a friendly government on its western border, uh, while, uh, you know, its eastern border is uh, considered, uh, obviously, uh, as as hostile territory for Pakistan because of Pakistan's uh, relationship, problematic, uh, to say the least, relationship with India. And so on its western border, uh, it wants it wants to make sure that the relationship it has with the government there is one that is friendlier towards Pakistan than it is towards India. Now, that has guided its strategy since. In um, the 1990s, that essentially meant that Pakistan um, supported uh, the Taliban uh, as it came into power. Uh, in, in in Pakistan, and so in nineteen uh, the nineteen ninety five to two thousand and one timeframe, Pakistan was the chief supporter of the Taliban uh, then, uh, and one of only three governments that recognized um, the the Taliban government then. 
in 2001, that's where sort of this double game um, uh, began from the, the U.S. point of view, uh, because Pakistan allied with the U.S. in the war on terror, so ostensibly uh, against the Taliban. But at the same time, the Taliban were able to take sanctuary in uh, in Pakistan. And Pakistan's interior minister even has said, um, uh, you know, if quite recently that the Taliban's families lived in, in Pakistan and continue to live in Pakistan. This is the Afghan Taliban that we're talking about. Uh, right, and right. that um, Pakistan um, has provided medical care uh, to the Taliban and so on. So, you know, it has, uh, the Taliban have had sanctuary in, in Pakistan and that sanctuary, uh, one can say has been, um, has played a big role in helping the Taliban relaunch essentially their insurgency uh, in uh, in Afghanistan um, and regroup uh, and eventually now uh, take over the country. Um, so that is and, and, and to be and to, to be clear, we're not just talking about the Taliban occupying uh, locations in the in the tribal areas in kind of Pakistan's front frontier region bordering Afghanistan, which is even the Pakistan government doesn't necessarily control completely. It's not, it's not an, a tolerance. It's, it's, we're talking about an active support of, of Taliban during this period. Right. Well, I, there are, you know, Pakistan officially uh, denies this support, but uh, the Taliban were known to be in Quetta, which is the capital of Balochistan, right. Uh, right. Uh, the southwestern province uh, in Pakistan that borders um, uh, both uh, Iran and Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, that's that's significant. Uh, and then, uh, you know, for instance, uh, Mullah Brother, uh, the now interim deputy prime minister of uh, the, the Taliban's new sort of interim government um, and the sort of chief negotiator of the Taliban was arrested in uh, Karachi, Pakistan in 2010. Uh, by Pakistani authorities uh, and remained in prison there until 2018, for instance, when he was released to take part in that Doha peace process. And so, so yes, it's not only as as one of the the preconditions to the Doha discussions under the Trump administration. Yes, so you know, Pakistan essentially produced uh, Barader uh, to negotiate. Uh, with the Trump administration, uh, you know, he was sort of the, the, their chief political negotiator. Um, and that was considered as helpful uh, for uh, the, the U.S. Taliban peace process. Should we understand the, the ISI and the Pakistan government as two separate entities? Is there, is there a tension between the longstanding occupants of the intelligence agencies and the, the elected government? Not with this elected government. Uh, I would say that uh, this current government, um, Imran Khan's government, is quite unique in it being um, sort of, and it, according to its own, you know, in its own words, in lockstep with the military establishment. Um, so, so for instance, when uh, the national security advisor, Pakistan's national security advisor, visited Washington recently, he came with the DTISI. Um, 
you know, the 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 DGISI uh, sort of regularly meets with the, the prime minister. So Imran Khan's government, this PTI government, has a very close relationship with both the chief of army staff. Imran Khan, in fact, granted the chief of army staff uh, an extension, um, a three-year extension. The term is supposed to be three years uh, in 2019. He basically approved that three-year extension um, and has a close relationship with the DGISI. Even in the past, I would say that uh, Pakistan's military intelligence agency is very powerful. Um, and so even if there might be disagreements in the, in the, in the past, um, uh, it's, it's not that the civilian government would dominate over it, uh, right? Uh, but in this case, uh, they seem to be functioning with, in some ways, um, kind, of, kind of a division of power, if you will, you know, um, the, the the military essentially controls foreign and security policy. Um, the the civilian government controls domestic po- politics and policy, and they're essentially, um, you know, uh, on the on the same page, as they say. Essentially, uh, you know, underwriting extremist groups in in a variety of places surrounding Afghanistan. Ha- it's created a huge amount of chaos. And I mean, obviously in places like Kashmir, but uh, also in Afghanistan, is, is that chaos? Is that a feature or a bug? I I mean, are they, would, would Pakistan prefer to have a a more orderly situation in Afghanistan or is the disruption of the region in a sense to constantly keep India off balance or um, to prevent other threats from from growing on its borders? Sure. Well, I would say that we should think of the chaos within Pakistan as a bug, right? So so we'll come to that. The TTP, you know, this has... Right. That's exactly where I want to go next. Yeah, definitely. So, So that certainly is a bug. And that is something, you know, sort of the... The idea that you um, have, uh, you know, these relationships with extremist groups comes back to 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 bite, uh, and it's uh, ended up killing tens of thousands of Pakistanis as well, including Pakistan's own security forces. So, so we'll come to that. I think on its western border, uh, it would benefit Pakistan to have um, a government that is is friendly to to Pakistan over other countries, certainly over India. Um, And uh, that Pakistan would feel in some ways that it can control, right? Um, So that's that's in Afghanistan. It would want, uh, you know, a peaceful situation there because it knows violence in Afghanistan spills over now into Pakistan, including through refugee flows. Uh, and that doesn't benefit uh, Pakistan, you know, the, the, the flows of refugees coming into the country. But it would have probably preferred, I would say, an outcome in Afghanistan in which perhaps there was a power sharing agreement, but in which the Taliban was essentially in charge. Right. So a somewhat, you know, peaceful arrangement in the end, but in which the Taliban was right, right. Uh, was predominantly in charge. Of course, what Pakistan ended up getting was, and, and and do you see that 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 was, that was its motivation in in helping to arrange the Doha talks? They were instrumental in in kind of behind the scenes in in helping to to bring the parties together uh, in in the Doha talks. Is that yes, correct? exactly in the in the U.S. Taliban peace agreement? And I, and I think 
I, there, there were sort of two uh, purposes there. I think, you know, it benefited Pakistan's relationship with the United States as well. And that's really important to the country, right? So, uh, you know, when the Trump administration, from a low point in its relationship, reached out to, to Pakistan, when Khalil Zad reached out to Pakistan to try to um, uh, get Pakistan to, you know, help with the Doha peace process, uh, that actually ended up... Um, uh, letting Pakistan and uh, the U.S. now have this sort of transactional relationship where the U.S. needed Pakistan and was sort of on relatively good terms for the last uh, couple of years of the Trump administration. So it worked to Pakistan's benefit in that sense as well, to be needed there. Um, and yes, I think the goal there, you know, Pakistan, the status quo in, in some ways worked well for Pakistan, right? So the U.S., with the U.S. presence, things were relatively contained in Afghanistan, in the last two years, right? So the 2018 to 2020 timeframe, um, you know, a small U.S. presence in the region, which kept things contained, right? So it was peaceful, relatively peaceful on its Western border. The Taliban was ascendant. Um, uh, but, uh, and, you know, it was sort of trending towards a point where uh, the Taliban, you know, would stay ascendant and ultimately have a, a sort of a, a large share at, at the very least in uh, any kind of government that might emerge in, in, in Afghanistan. So I think that was sort of what it wanted. I, it doesn't want, you know, civil war in Afghanistan doesn't benefit Pakistan. Right, right. right. Uh, just extreme chaos in uh, Afghanistan doesn't benefit Pakistan. But, uh, but uh, certainly it did not prefer an Ashraf Ghani uh, government uh, or a government that was not friendly to it. Uh, it prefers the Taliban regime right. over the Ashraf Ghani government uh, any day. And so that's sort of where its incentives in some ways uh, and its motivations lie when it comes to Afghanistan. So let's let's talk about Tariq Taliban, the TTP, which is an organization that I think prior to recent events, most Americans probably never even heard of. In a way, it parallels the, you know, there's a lens of looking at 9-11 in terms of a blowback for investing in the Mujahideen. Uh, in, in, during the Soviet occupation, is is the TTP essentially the Pakistan's version of that? That the outgrowth of of trying to create this group for an external purpose, uh, and then threatening them internally. Tell us what the TTP is and and kind of how that came out of that situation. Sure. Well, the TTP, you know, one can think of it in some ways as sort of the ideological twin of the Afghan Taliban. What the TTP wants for Pakistan is what the Afghan Taliban wants for Afghanistan, right? To control the country and to have, um, to impose Sharia. It doesn't think that the, you know, like the Afghan Taliban did not think that the previous government of Afghanistan was Islamic enough, uh, uh, for its tastes. You know, the TTP doesn't think that Pakistan's government. Right. Is. And so it basically poses an existential threat to the Pakistani state. Uh, it, it wants to take over uh, Pakistan and impose uh, sort of its version of Sharia. Now, the difference in Pakistan versus Afghanistan is that uh, the um, that the Pakistani establishment, the military, the government um, is much stronger uh, than a central government in Afghanistan has been. And so it's able to it was able to kinetically defeat or at least kinetically push out the, the TTP, um, uh, you know, into the tribal areas. And many of them went over into Afghanistan where they actually were in, in prison uh, in, in Afghanistan as well. 
Um, the TTP essentially, you know, had started uh, sort of there were various groups that had started attacking the Pakistani state in the post-2001 time period. They coalesced uh, under an umbrella, uh, the Tehrik Taliban Pakistan in 2007. And from 2007 to 2014, 2015, uh, they essentially resulted in tens of thousands of deaths uh, of civilians and uh, Pakistan's uh, security forces as well. So, um, you know, it, they, they posed a huge threat. So that's Pakistan. a significant, I mean, that's, that's a significant internal threat. That is a significant internal threat. And, uh, you know, my book, uh, Pakistan Under Siege, actually goes into that time period uh, and Pakistani's views towards um, the, the TTP and, and sort of Pakistan's attitudes towards the TTP. And there are a lot of uh, reasons why during that time period, Pakistan was not able to control the TTP. But one of the problems was that it never actually countered the narrative of the TTP, right? It's so, you know, it would... In uh, before 2007, you know, a, a general uh, in in Pakistan basically said, you know, of members of the TTP, you know, there are brothers and they can be contained. There is this idea that you can contain militant groups. You know, that basically underlies sort of this this problem that that, that Pakistan has in terms of its relationship with extremist groups. It thinks that it can use its relationship with the Lashkar-e-Taiba or with the Afghan Taliban to control, you know, Afghanistan or to control um, sort of what Pakistan wants as the outcomes in, in Kashmir to keep India at bay in the case of the Lashkar-e-Taiba. But when those groups, you know, or incarnations of those groups start attacking the Pakistani state because of ideological reasons, then, um, uh, you know, that's when Pakistan runs into problems. And because it's fostered this kind of extremism and, you know, this is, it's in some ways a much longer story um, than, than just the Mujahideen. You know, in some ways, since 1947, you know, the two pillars Pakistan, since its inception, has relied on are the pillars of Islam and the enmity with India. And those kind of define its interaction. It's uh, Those define its uh, sort of how its politics works, how its laws work, how its education system works. And because of those, it's population has sort of internalized uh, um, uh, sort of this sense uh, of looking at things a certain way, that when they look at a group like the TTP, they may not think of it as a threat. Um, they may buy into its propaganda. Uh, and so militancy and extremism can thrive in such, a, in such an environment. What is that, what's the connection between the TTP and ISK, the group that was behind the attack on the Kabul airport? Sure. Well, the Islamic State Khorasan, or you know, what's becoming known more commonly right now as the as ISIS K, um, was uh, came out as a regional affiliate of ISIS uh, in the Afghanistan Pakistan region, and it essentially pledges allegiance to central ISIS, but runs its own day to day operations. Um, and it attacks targets in both Afghanistan and Pakistan, and that's what it's done since. Um, the the 2015 timeframe, um, how uh, it is different from the the Taliban is that it actually recruits from disaffected Afghan Taliban and Pakistani Taliban militants, so TTP and Afghan Taliban uh, militants, as well as an array of other disaffected militants. So that's sort of the you know as an aside, that's the central problem with 
thinking that you can control extremist groups in the region because you, you can always have the groups uh, be recruited by another more extreme version uh, of um, uh, of an extremist group. So the people the, the people joining ISIS-K are the people who thought the TTP wasn't violent enough, wasn't extreme enough. Exactly. And similarly for the Afghan Taliban. In fact, you know, one of the ways that the ISIS-K is recruiting uh, now is uh, that it thinks um, that that it says that uh, the Afghan Taliban engaged in a peace deal with the United States, and so they're they're moderate, right? They're basically selling out, uh, and so uh, they're sort of the extreme, hard, more hardline version of already the very very extreme and hardline Afghan Taliban or the the Pakistani Taliban, right, and right. basically, uh, you know, uh, think of. Uh, the the TTP or the Afghan Taliban as their sworn enemies. So we can think of, you know, in terms of sort of this ecosystem of groups in the region, while they all may, you know, recruit from uh, sort of uh, a similar um, array of of foot soldiers, uh, the way these groups at their leadership level function, uh, you can think of the Afghan Taliban, the TTP, uh, Al-Qaeda as more allied and, you know, so next to them, you know, you can also think of groups like the Lashkar-e-Taiba, which has a different target, which, you know, attacks sort of targets in, you know, India, Kashmir. But it, um, you can think of those groups as allied, but you can think of ISIS-K in some sense as, uh, you know, a group that is in opposition to um, Al-Qaeda and uh, the Afghan Taliban. And, and is there active coordination with ISIS in Syria and Iraq? I mean, since al-Baghdadi died in the 2019 raid, the leadership of what we think of ISIS core is a, is a little diminished, but I mean, it's still active. Uh, it's Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Karashi now who's leading ISIS core. It, what's that relationship between ISIS-K and what we were thinking of previously as ISIS? Sure. I mean, I think there is a, the, the day-to-day operations are different. Their leader, the ISIS-K um, leader locally is different uh, and has been. And, uh, you know, four of its emirs have been killed by um, U.S. and Afghan security forces over the years. And, you know, hundreds of ISIS-K leadership uh, folks have also been uh, killed. And so the group has certainly diminished from its height when it was supposed to be about 4,000 people. But in terms of the relationship with sort of central ISIS, you know, the ideological relationship uh, remains. It's basically the way to think of it is is as one regional affiliate uh, that central ISIS has accepted as a regional affiliate. Uh, there are other regional affiliates, for instance, you know, ISIS uh, in West Africa province, right, that, that functions uh, in Nigeria and so on. So so ISIS-K was one regional affiliate and actually until until recently not the most prominent of those regional affiliates. And in fact, had been diminished quite considerably by the U.S. and by uh, Afghan security forces targeting it, but still had been able to engage in sort of these high casualty, uh, high profile attacks that have become sort of the, the marker of the group, very, very brutal attacks. You know, I can give you a few examples, even before the horrific attack uh, at the Kabul airport. Um, there was one at the at a maternity ward in Kabul last year, uh, one at a school in Kabul in May, uh, which killed mostly uh, adolescent school children, um, one in Pakistan in 2017 at a Sufi shrine where 
uh, you know, dozens of people died. And so this is sort of even even when they have been uh, targeted and cornered, they've been able to engage in these kinds of high casualty strikes. In addition to the the bombing at the airport gate, there were rocket attacks on the airport. Most of those were, it sounds like they were defeated by CRAM or the, you know, the, the defense network around the airport at the time. Do you have any sense of what their larger capabilities are? Are they able to project beyond the region? I mean, Coruscant, Coruscant is maybe you, you can just define for us historically what that means, you know, res- restoring this caliphate. I mean, potentially they're a threat to everything from Iran to Pakistan to, I guess, all the way to Tajikistan. If, uh, if you know, you you take the kind of historical Coruscant. What's what what is your assessment of their larger capabilities of projecting beyond the region and more than just low capacity suicide attacks and things like that? You can think of the group as evolving, right? And so one doesn't, uh, and and especially in an environment where you know you don't have. U.S. forces and Afghan security forces actively targeting it when the Taliban are, uh, you know, uh, have their hands full with trying to deal with uh, a country that now they've taken over when for the past 20 years they were running an insurgency, uh, they may not be able to um, uh, control um, and and target ISIS-K the way U.S. forces and Afghan security forces were, you know, you can think of the group as having the potential to grow. But to date, you know, they have essentially shown that their major uh, sort of interest lies in uh, in attacking targets in, in, in Afghanistan, because even the attacks in, in Pakistan, there have been significant attacks in Pakistan, but but far fewer uh, in number uh, than the ones in, in, in Afghanistan. So, you know, in, in some ways they exploit uh, an environment of uncertainty uh, and gaps where they're able to get through and engage in these attacks. Uh, whether they're able to uh, sort of use this as a recruiting ground and use uh, sort of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan to generate more funds and able to increase their capabilities, I think it remains um, a bit of an open question and, and we'll have to see. But in terms of sort of the size of the group to date, you know, I think their focus is more Afghanistan focused than uh than sort of a, a much larger regional focus. Do you put any credence in the idea that the administration has floated that potentially the U.S. and and the Taliban could find common common cause in 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 ISIS K as as an enemy? I mean, it, it does seem that they're the guy that everybody hates. I mean, they're they're using their mo of pulling fighters from all of these other groups. Uh, they they certainly don't seem to have many direct allies. Uh, is there is there a uh, triangulation towards ISIS-K between the Taliban and the U.S. that's possible or between some of these other groups? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think this is where we enter into really murky <laughs> territory, which is a bit of a can of worms, because what does this co- kind of cooperation mean? Does it mean intelligence cooperation? Uh, you know, can we trust the Taliban <laughs> in terms of intelligence cooperation? What does this really mean? Right, right. So while the incentives of both the United States and the Taliban may be aligned in trying to, uh, uh, you know, dismantle or, or 
you know, decimate or attack ISIS-K. I worry about cooperation uh, when the partner is uh, a group, the, the, the Taliban, when the ostensible or the would-be partner is a group that the U.S. has essentially been fighting for for the last 20 years. And so in some ways, you know, my... Uh, my inclination would be to keep these things separate. You know, if the Taliban is targeting ISIS-K, fine. If the U.S. is targeting ISIS-K, you know, yes, it should do so, but on its own. And I, I worry about intelligence sharing in particular with a group as untrustworthy as the, the Taliban and the one that, again, um, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, the Taliban and, and the U.S. have been fighting each other for, for the last 20 years. Right. Absolutely. Do, have you read any reporting about following up on the drone attack uh, that was in response to the to the airport bombing? Did you see any assessments of was that anyone that mattered? Was it part of ISK leadership? Did did it have any impact on on their capacity or, or we, we just may not know from open sources? But uh, have you have you heard or read anything that helped you understand whether that that specific attack was of any use whatsoever? Sure. No, I think um, uh, that's an attack that, you know, uh, certainly uh, many of us would want to, want to know more about, right? Because it's a, a bit shrouded uh, in, in secrecy. Um, and there is this... They, they, they won't even identify the target, right? At the, the administration hasn't said who, who was targeted, just simply, I guess they've set up a, a planner. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that there was intelligence, you know, that 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 was a planner and there was an imminent threat to the airport. Um, but uh, certainly I think events have been moving so fast that there hasn't been a focus on sort of following through uh, on that drone strike specifically. Uh, but I would hope that, you know, we can get more information uh, in the in the coming weeks as, as things you know settle down as they are settling down you know as the U.S. has withdrawn uh, completely. Uh, but it might just be something that is overtaken by events and that we don't hear much more about uh, in the in the in the next uh, few weeks. That certainly would be useful information, I think, to share uh, with the public as well because so much attention was focused on that. Right. So let's return back to Pakistan's influence on the Taliban now forming a government in Afghanistan post-U.S. withdrawal. Over the weekend, we saw the attacks by the Taliban stepping up on the Panjshir Valley, the National Resistance Front, the forces that were under Ahmad Massoud, uh, that were one of the last holdouts against the Taliban. We, we actually had uh, Kamal Alam, who was an advisor to Ahmad Massoud on the show last week. Uh, he was This was before they stepped up the attacks. Over the weekend and over the last several days, we've seen a real social media psychological warfare back and forth of the Taliban claiming success and the NRF claiming success and uh, I think some Indian sources claiming that Pakistan drones were being used in the operation. We did see the ISI chief visit Kabul during that period. What is your assessment of what you're what you're reading and hearing about Pakistan's involvement with current Taliban military operations, specifically in the Panjshir Valley? Sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of um, 
there is sort of a black hole in terms of information uh, coming out from Panchir and a lot of misinformation that is flowing around as well. Um, so I think the the answer is that we really just don't know right now, uh, you know, what uh, Pakistan's role may have been uh, in, in the Panchir Valley. And uh, I would hope that we are able to find out. Um, you know, the, the BBC has uh, an analysis out where, again, it says that there's no solid evidence of Pakistani drones uh, being used in Panjshir uh, to date. No solid evidence. But again, we don't, we, the answer is that we just don't know. The DGISI uh, did visit over three days, uh, visited Kabul. There was no official statement from the Pakistani government about why he was there and what the purpose of the visit was uh, beyond, you know, the information minister basically saying uh, because there was no government yet, you know, it's an unconventional kind of meetings need to be had. Uh, but that just inflames uh, suspicions and tensions. And that's why you saw these anti-Pakistan protests taking place in Kabul yesterday, where um, Afghans were decrying Pakistan's, you know, what they see as Pakistan's interference in, in Afghanistan. So I think the DGISI's visit really just inflamed tensions, opened up a can of worms in terms of questions uh, people have about Pakistan's role. And, you know, soon after he left, we have the formation of or the announcement of an interim cabinet. So what was the role there? Um, uh, uh, you, the, there is just at this point, uh, you know, a lot we don't know, um, uh, a lot of allegations, I think, uh, and a lot of suspicions. But what we do know is sort of the basic case, if you will, uh, uh, of, uh, you know, Pakistan's involvement in Afghanistan. And that is that Pakistan has been allied with and has been a supporter of the Taliban, and that remains right. Um, and uh, it's certainly it's it's sort of overtures, if you will, uh, including with this visit. Um, uh, if anything, confirm that that relationship with the Taliban is strong and remains intact, uh, and that that uh, Pakistan doesn't intend to give that relationship up. Uh, and so, to date, that's what we know. And uh, again, you know, I think. Uh, it, it would be useful to find out more in this environment where the where the Taliban are actually shutting down media and you know sort of uh, uh, causing there to be information blackouts in Afghanistan um, and where so many journalists have just left the country. Uh, that makes right, Afghanistan right. this sort of hotbed in many ways uh, for for misinformation. Well, and, and as I was alluding to a little bit, you know, there's a perpetual war, a propaganda war back and forth between India and Pakistan and people who support either side in terms of, you know, anything that might put Pakistan in a bad light is, you know, readily promoted by um, uh, lots of pro-India people and, and vice versa. So I think for people who are just dipping their toes into that part of Twitter and maybe aren't necessarily aware of all the all the players. Um, I, what I'm hearing from you and, and, and have read elsewhere is, is just, you know, to be, you know, use good common sense that we don't know a lot of what we don't even don't know. We don't know. 
especially when it comes to inside Afghanistan, and that there are lots of other parties involved in this that that have additional agendas for promoting one theory over the other. Absolutely, and I think you know there are some some things that we've seen in sort of this kind of misinformation war are images used from elsewhere, you know, from uh, from England, from the US uh, and other places. And said, right. you know, basically uh, people have said they're images from Panchir, they're even video game uh, images that have been used. So so it really is a, a, an environment that is festering uh, with, with all of that. And so in that, I think it's important to just say, we don't quite yet know what has been happening and, and really sort of underline what we do know. Right, right. So let's talk about another major player in this this calculus. Let's talk about China. China and Pakistan have had a, a longstanding intelligence arrangement uh, that's that's very close. China, of course, has interests on its western border, Afghanistan's eastern border, with regards to uh, the Uyghurs and uh, some of the extremist groups there. Talk to us about how China's interests, again, now that the U.S. is gone, it opens an additional opportunity for China to become more involved with uh, the Taliban government and, and Pakistan. How do you see China working into the relationship between Pakistan and Taliban? Sure. Well, China's interests in Afghanistan, I mean, there may be longer term economic interests, but currently I think the way um, to look at China's interests in Afghanistan are, are that there are real security interests. And they really come from uh, two sort of angles. One is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, uh, which is uh, sort of the flagship of China's Belt and Road Project in the um, in in Pakistan. Uh, that's a that's a huge economic investment uh, that China has made, and China wants to make sure that. Uh, Chinese workers and its investments are protected in Pakistan. And that essentially means no attacks on um, on Chinese targets uh, uh, from Afghan soil. And that includes the TTP. The TTP has attacked uh, Chinese targets um, in, uh, in, in recent months and years. Uh, so China wants to try to maintain this kind of relationship it, with the Afghan Taliban that makes it feel secure um, that uh, Afghan soil won't be used right. against those targets. So that's the first. And then the second is the uh, China wanting to make sure that the East Turkestan Islamic movement doesn't target uh, China. And that's based uh, in, in Afghanistan. And so that's sort of a, a, the, the second security concern it has. Um, it you know, essentially wants regional stability for its uh, for its interests and its investments in the region, in particular in Pakistan, and that's sort of the reason why it's in some ways reluctantly embraced um, the the Afghan Taliban, as, as some have said. Um, now, China and and Pakistan have a very close relationship. Uh, you know, Pakistan uh, and, and China often call each other Iron Brothers. Uh, and they they use you know uh, words like or, or phrases like you know their friendship is higher than the highest mountain, deeper than the deepest sea or valley, uh, and so um, what the you know the takeover of uh, um, Pac- of Afghanistan by the Taliban does is um, I think in in some ways it uh, sort of changes the dynamics. Uh, of the region somewhat in a way that, you know, we can, we could already think 
of, you know, obviously the U.S. and India relationship being strong and the Pakistan-China relationship being strong. And in some ways, you know, them kind of offsetting each other. But Pakistan had made it it clear that it wanted a relationship with the U.S. that wasn't defined by its relationship with China. I think that will become harder now uh, as sort of Pakistan is seen in this sort of camp of, you know. Do you mean mean a a, a relationship between with Pakistan that doesn't depend on Pakistan's relationship with Afghanistan or Pakistan's F- relationship with China. Yeah, let's let, maybe I should that's a, that's a good point. So let me say, let me say that differently. Um Pakistan had made it clear that it didn't want its relationship uh with the US to be uh one that was thought of as zero sum relative to its relationship with China. Basically it didn't want its relationship with uh, the US to come at the expense of its relationship with China and vice versa, right? It wanted to maintain both those relationships. I think with the Afghan Taliban now in charge of Afghanistan, I think that complicates uh, the equation a bit for Pakistan because it will be seen as kind of moving into this other side camp, you know, away from the U.S. and sort of closer. Uh, and, and and if China and Pakistan are the two, are, you know, uh, part of the sort of a group of countries that recognize the Taliban uh, quickly, you know, uh, are one of the sort of the the first set of countries to recognize the Taliban uh, and the U.S. is not, that essentially moves Pakistan uh, further away from the U.S. into this, you know, sort of more regional camp, if you will, of, you know, sort of the relationship with the Taliban, the stronger relationship with China, and the then, you know, India, of course, which doesn't have a strong relationship with the Taliban, moves back and, and closer to the U.S. So in some ways, I think it uh, uh, sort of, there are these dynamics that already existed, uh, these lines in some ways that have already been drawn, but that get drawn a little bit uh, more firmly uh, with uh, the, this new takeover of uh, Afghanistan by the Taliban. Um, I think, you know, this, because, you know, it would be hard um, for Washington at this point to justify moving closer uh, to Pakistan or broadening the relationship with Pakistan in, in right. significant ways when, um, you know, many in Washington, of course, see the loss in, in Afghanistan uh, as the product of, uh, you know, uh, what, what Washington sees as Pakistan's double game, really, and the fact that the Taliban had sanctuary in, in Pakistan. And so, um, you know, that, that will certainly, I think, move uh, Pakistan and the U.S. further apart. There are still counterterrorism um, goals that they could cooperate on, uh, and, and we can discuss those. Uh, but I, I think it has just made um, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship that much more complicated as well, and that essentially also pushes <laughs> Pakistan um, in sort of into into the the China camp even further. And I think uh, you know China sees this. Uh, uh, as um, perhaps not initially as uh, a huge boon for it uh, because Afghanistan is a really complicated place to try to have influence. <laughs> uh, but right, uh, it right. certainly sees this as some somewhat of a win, right? Uh, especially in terms of, you know, what it can use as rhetoric against the U.S., propaganda against the U.S., uh, the, the, the retreat, uh, and in particular, sort of the manner of the withdrawal. But it seems that, uh, I mean, 
China, at least in the near term, will have some of the same problems that everybody has in terms of taking advantage of any economic opportunities. I mean, there's still is a large deal of instability. And if you've got groups like ISK running around out there, you know, it's going to be very difficult for China to set up a rare earth mineral mine in Afghanistan and and be able to feel confident about its security. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it does seem like it, it obviously it, it would be in China's interest in the long term to to have greater stability in Afghanistan, but we're we're still a ways away from that. No, I, exactly. I think that's exactly right. And I think those who argue that uh, uh, China is going to find some big economic <laughs> uh, advantages in Afghanistan, uh, you know, sort of overstate the the case. I think really it's it's more about trying to use a relationship and. Uh, to try to preserve security in its region for its own current interests. Do you anticipate Pakistan recognizing the Taliban government? Yeah, so Pakistan has said uh, um, that it would follow the international community and that it would um, sort of uh, not take a unilateral decision, that it would just do this kind of in consultation, at least with regional countries. I don't see Pakistan as going out on a limb and being the first one to recognize the Taliban. But at this point, you know, given the DGISI's visit, given sort of, you know, the indications it's showing, I would not put it past Pakistan to be one of the first group of countries. The one would have thought perhaps that, you know, it would be more careful about what kind of image that sends across to the world in terms of, you know, publicly displaying its closeness uh, with the, with the, uh, the, the Taliban. But I think the DGISI's visit, again, as public as it was, kind of renders that point moot. I think Pakistan is okay with showing its uh, closeness publicly. And if Pakistan recognizes the Taliban government, do you anticipate that even being an issue in the Pakistan-U.S. relationship? I mean, that's a that's an important question. In some ways, I think you know, uh, the Biden administration it didn't want Afghanistan to be the focus of its uh, first, you know, uh, sure, six, seven sure. months uh, in, in, in power. And in some ways it wants, you know, to uh, move on to uh, issues that, you know, domestic issues, for instance. So it may not dwell more on the, uh, the, the Taliban and the Afghanistan issue than, than needed, than it wants to. Um, but I think there are still many in uh, the Biden administration who uh, were um, in, um, uh, you know, in the Obama administration who uh, have that sort of history, that apprehension, that mistrust of Pakistan. So I, I doubt that they will want to move as Pakistan wants to, you know, a broader relationship beyond Afghanistan. And I think one worry, of course, in the Biden administration uh, is uh, the fact that, um, you know, Sirajuddin Haqqani is at least the deputy, in, or at least the interim interior minister. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, the, the, the Biden administration and the U.S. Uh, worry about the Haqqani network um, quite a bit. So sort of that, that dynamic, you know, I don't think the U.S. will want to engage with the Taliban, uh, you know, uh, in, with this kind of interim arrangement, at least, you know, uh, non-inclusive, certainly government, but a government that has, you know, terrorists uh, essentially as part of the, the cabinet. Um, so, so the U.S. 
I think uh, desire to engage with the Taliban will go down. And so how will it view uh, Pakistan's uh, uh, engagement with uh, the Taliban? I think that's that's the question. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a complicated one. I see um, the likely response as somewhere between a shrug and disengagement with Pakistan. I don't necessarily see any incentive for the Biden administration currently to engage constructively with Pakistan. I mean, to be frank, even in the uh, now nearly eight months that, uh, you know, since uh, President Biden took um, took office, he hasn't, you know, called still the prime minister of Pakistan. So the relationship even to date when the, wow. the yeah. administration needed Pakistan, you know, for the withdrawal in many ways and for the intra-Afghan peace process, the relationship has been a bit of a cold shoulder, right? There has been engagement at various levels, but certainly not at the top. You know, Biden has not called Imran Khan. I don't really necessarily see that now uh, shifting to an embrace. Certainly nothing that indicates that the relationship will be about anything but Afghanistan uh, as exactly the opposite of what uh, it sounds like Pakistan is, is interested Yes. Well, uh, there's so much more to talk about. Uh, we haven't. Uh, there's a, a number of other players in the region that we we haven't even touched on, and and obviously that relationship between Pakistan and the U.S. is is super complicated. It, it in a, in a nutshell, if you look back at everything that we talked about, the history that Pakistan has with all the extremist groups in the region, what is the argument for maintaining engagement with the Pakistans uh, with the Pakistanis on Afghanistan sure i mean i think the argument is to try and cooperate where possible right there are still you know for instance targets like the ttp uh that that's where cooperation is possible uh there's still some kind of counterterrorism cooperation that may be possible whether it's public or not you know pakistan has cooperated with the us in the past in terms of uh you know sort of the glocks the alocks um airlines of communication ground lines of communication providing nato supply routes uh and so i think there is um an argument to be made that an abandonment and a disengagement basically fuels Pakistan's narratives that lead it to engage in uh, these kinds of hedging uh, behaviors in the region, just like it did in the 1990s, right? I mean, sort of that narrative of U.S. abandonment after 1989 really influenced Pakistan's sort of support of uh, the Taliban in many ways and some of the other um, sort of uh, things it has done in terms of hedging behavior. It's that sort of idea that the U.S. will leave and so we might as well, you know, preserve our own interests. And so if in the long term, engagement uh, rather than abandonment is the way to try to start uh, you know, aligning Pakistan's behaviors more with what the U.S. wants to get Pakistan uh, to be a trustworthy partner. Um, you know, I think Pakistan wants to feel that it won't be abandoned by the U.S. And so this is a longer term proposition. This is not this is not short term. But I think that's the, the argument in the long term for engagement. Well, on that, we will have to end it there for today. Medea Afzal, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military, defense, and national security issues that matter. You can sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.